0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Ian Bartholomew. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Book One, Chapter Four, Part Seven. In Northumberland, the triumph of Sir John Fenwick, a courtier whose name afterwards obtained a melancholy celebrity was attended by circumstances which excited interest in London, and which were thought not unworthy of being mentioned in the dispatches of foreign ministers. Newcastle was lighted up with great piles of coal. The steeple sent forth a joyous peal. A copy of the Exclusion Bill, and a black box, resembling that which, according to the popular fable, contained the contract between Charles II and Lucy Walters, were publicly committed to the flames, with loud acclamation. The general result of the elections exceeded the most sanguine expectations of the court. James found with delight that it would be unnecessary for him to expend a farthing in buying votes. He said that, with the exception of about forty members, the House of Commons was just such as he should himself have named. And this House of Commons it was in his power, as the law then stood, to keep to the end of his reign. Secure of parliamentary support he might now indulge in the luxury of revenge. His nature was not placable, and while still a subject, he had suffered some injuries and indignities which might move even a placable nature to fierce and lasting resentment. One set of men in particular had, with a baseness and cruelty beyond all example and all description, attacked his honour and his life, the witnesses of the plot he may well be excused for hating them, since even to this day the mention of their names excites the disgust and horror of all sects and parties. Some of these wretches were already beyond the reach of human justice. Bedloe had died in his wickedness, without one sign of remorse or shame. Dugdale had followed, driven mad, men said, by the furies of an evil conscience. And with loud shrieks imploring those who stood round his bed to take away Lord Stafford. Carstairs, too, was gone. His end had been all horror and despair. And with his last breath he had told his attendants to throw him into a ditch like a dog, for that he was not fit to sleep in a Christian burial-ground. But Oates and Dangerfield were still within the reach of the stern prince whom they had wronged. James, a short time before his accession, had instituted a civil suit against Oates for defamatory words, and the jury had given damages to the enormous amount of a hundred thousand pounds. The defendant had been taken in execution, and was laying in prison as a debtor, without hope of release. Two bills of indictment against him for perjury had been found by the grand jury of Middlesex, a few weeks before the death of Charles. Soon after the close of the elections, the trial came on. Among the upper and middle classes, Oates had few friends left. The most respectable Whigs were now convinced that, even if his narrative had some foundation in fact, he had erected on that foundation a vast superstructure of romance. A considerable number of low fanatics, however, still regarded him as a public benefactor. These people well knew that, if he were convicted, his sentence would be one of extreme severity and were therefore indefatigable in their endeavours to manage an escape. Though he was as yet in confinement only for debt, he was put into irons by the authorities of the King's Bench Prison, and even so he was with difficulty kept in safe custody. The mastiff that guarded his door was poisoned, and on the very night preceding the trial a ladder of ropes was introduced into the cell. On the day in which Titus was brought to the bar, Westminster Hall was crowded with spectators, among whom were many Roman Catholics, eager to see the misery and humiliation of their persecutor. A few years earlier, his short neck, his legs uneven, the vulgar said, as those of a badger, his forehead low as that of a baboon, his purple cheeks, and his monstrous length of chin, had been familiar to all who frequented the courts of law. He had then been an idol of the nation. Wherever he had appeared, men had uncovered their heads to him the lives and estates of the magnates of the realm had been at his mercy. Times had now changed, and many who had formerly regarded him as the deliverer of his country shuddered at the sight of those hideous features on which villainy seemed to be written by the hand of God. It was proved beyond all possibility of doubt that this man had by false testimony deliberately murdered several guiltless persons— called in vain on the most eminent members of the Parliament, which had rewarded and extolled him to give evidence in his favour. Some of those whom he had summoned absented themselves. None of them said anything tending to his vindication. One of them, the Earl of Huntingdon, bitterly reproached him with having deceived the houses, and drawn on them the guilt of shedding innocent blood. The judges browbeat and reviled the prisoner with an intemperance which, Even in the most atrocious cases, ill becomes the judicial character. He betrayed, however, no sign of fear or of shame, and faced the storm of invective which burst upon him from the bar, bench, and witness-box. With the insolence of despair, he was convicted on both indictments. His offence, though in a moral light, murder of the most aggravated kind, was, in the eye of the law, merely a misdemeanour, The tribunal, however, was desirous to make his punishment more severe than that of felons or traitors, and not merely to put him to death, but to put him to death by frightful torments. He was sentenced to be stripped of his clerical habit, to be pilloried in palace yard, to be led round Westminster Hall with an inscription declaring his infamy over his head, to be pilloried again in front of the royal exchange, to be whipped from Olgate to Newgate, and after an interval of two days, to be whipped from Newgate to Tyburn. If against all probability he should happen to survive this horrible infliction, he was to be kept close prisoner during life. Five times every year he was to be brought forth from his dungeon and exposed on the pillory in different parts of the capital. This rigorous sentence was rigorously executed. On the day on which Oates was pilloried in Palace Yard, he was mercilessly pelted, and ran some risk of being pulled to pieces. But in the city his partisans mustered in great force, raised a riot, and upset the pillory. They were, however, unable to rescue their favourite. It was supposed that he would try to escape the horrible doom which awaited him by swallowing poison. All that he ate and drank was therefore carefully inspected. On the following morning he was brought forth to undergo his first flogging. At an early hour an innumerable multitude filled all the streets from Oldgate to the Old Bailey. The hangman laid on the lash with such unusual severity as showed that he had received special instructions. The blood ran down in rivulets. For a time the criminal showed a strange constancy, but at last his stubborn fortitude gave way. His bellowings were frightful to hear. He swooned several times, but the scourge still continued to descend. When he was unbound, It seemed that he had borne as much as a human frame can bear without dissolution. James was entreated to remit the second flogging. His answer was short and clear. He shall go through with it if he has breath in his body. An attempt was made to obtain the Queen's intercession, but she indignantly refused to say a word in favour of such a wretch. After an interval of only forty-eight hours, Oates was again brought out of his dungeon. He was unable to stand and it was necessary to drag him to Tyburn on a sledge. He seemed quite insensible, and the Tories reported that he had stupefied himself with strong drink. A person who counted the stripes on the second day said that they were seventeen hundred. The bad man escaped with life, but so narrowly that his ignorant and bigoted admirers thought his recovery miraculous, and appealed to it as proof of his innocence. The doors of the prison closed upon him. During many months he remained ironed in the darkest hole of newgate it was said that in his cell he gave himself up to melancholy and sate whole days uttering deep groans his arms folded and his hat pulled over his eyes it was not in england alone that these events excited strong interest millions of roman catholics who knew nothing of our institutions or of our factions had heard that a persecution of singular barbarity had raged in our island against the professors of the true faith that many pious men had suffered martyrdom and that Titus Oates had been the chief murderer there was therefore great joy in distant countries when it was known that the divine justice had overtaken him engravings of him looking out from the pillory and writhing at the cart's tail were circulated all over europe and epigrammists in many languages "'made merry with the doctoral titles "'which he pretended to have received "'from the University of Salamanca, "'and remarked that, "'since his forehead could not be made to blush, "'it was but reasonable that his back should do so. "'Horrible as were the sufferings of Oates, "'they did not equal his crimes. "'The old law of England, "'which had been suffered to become obsolete, "'treated the false witness, "'who had caused death by means of perjury, "'as a murderer. "'This was wise and righteous,' for such a witness is, in truth, the worst of murderers. To the guilt of shedding innocent blood he had added the guilt of violating the most solemn engagement into which man can enter with his fellow men, and of making institutions, to which it is desirable that the public should look with respect and confidence, instruments of frightful wrong and objects of general distrust. The pain produced by ordinary murder— bears no proportion to the pain produced by murder of which the courts of justice are made the agents the mere extinction of life is a very small part of what makes an execution horrible the prolonged mental agony of the sufferer the shame and misery of all connected with him the stain abiding even to the third and fourth generation are things far more dreadful than death itself In general it may be safely affirmed that the father of a large family would rather be bereaved of all his children by accident or by disease than lose one of them by the hands of the hangman. Murder by false testimony is therefore the most aggravated species of murder, and Oates had been guilty of many such murders. Nevertheless, the punishment which was inflicted upon him cannot be justified. In sentencing him to be stripped of his ecclesiastical habit, and imprisoned for life, the judges exceeded their legal power. They were undoubtedly competent to inflict whipping, nor had the law assigned a limit to the number of stripes. But the spirit of the law clearly was that no misdemeanour should be punished more severely than the most atrocious felonies. The worst felon could only be hanged. The judges, as they believed, sentenced Oates to be scourged to death. That the law was defective is not a sufficient excuse for defective laws should be altered by the legislature, and not strained by the tribunals, and least of all should the law be strained for the purposes of inflicting torture and destroying life. That Oates was a bad man is not a sufficient excuse, for the guilty are almost always the first to suffer those hardships which are afterwards used as precedents against the innocent. Thus it was in the present case, Merciless flogging soon became an ordinary punishment for political misdemeanours of no very aggravated kind. Men were sentenced, for words spoken against the government, to pains so excruciating that they, with unfeigned earnestness, begged to be brought to trial on capital charges and sent to the gallows. Happily, the progress of this great evil was speedily stopped by the revolution, and by that article of the Bill of Rights which condemns all cruel and unusual punishments. End of part seven.